If Christ is king, how should the Christian consider the kingdoms of this world? What does the Bible teach us about human authority and what it means to love our neighbors and our enemies? Before we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, let's know what it means to render unto God what is God's. This is the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, the modern prophetic voice against war and empire. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, project of the Libertarian Christian Institute and part of the Christians for Liberty Network. This week and every week on Biblical Anarchy, we seek to live counterculture to the empire of man and to instead seek the kingdom of God by unpacking what the Bible teaches about government, authority, and human relationships. I am your host, Jacob Winograd. So for today's episode, we are still going to be talking on the subject of war and things pertaining to what's going on in Israel and Gaza and America's role in all this, although more tangentially than head-on specifically, like many of the episodes of late have been. I am trying to, by the way, be somewhat considerate that perhaps this isn't everyone's favorite subject. And uh, there have been, you know, a couple breaks in this programming, so to speak, where we haven't been strictly talking about what's going on in international politics and wars and things like that. That is, you know, said in the intro of this show that I try to be the modern, not in a way where I'm trying to equate myself with like an Old Testament prophet, but in the sense that we're all called to uh, speak truth, and you know Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You know, I want to be a prophetic voice against war, against empire, and so I'm not going to stop talking about war. Although I will make an effort to make sure that not every episode is going to necessarily be about that. But I do want to be relevant to what's going on. If I was talking about COVID lockdowns right now, although that's a subject I think is important, it would be a little bit out of left field if I was talking about that too much right now. I want to talk about what is in the zeitgeist, what's in the Overton window, what people are talking about, and bring a Christian perspective on that first and foremost. And yes, it'll often be a Christian and libertarian position, but sort of as the premise of this show is, sort of the premise of the Libertarian Christian Institute is, you know, we kind of think those things go hand in hand. And doesn't mean that Christians who aren't libertarians or who don't like the word anarchist are bad Christians. It's not even so much about those labels. It's more just about what does the Bible teach us about these things and wanting to live those out consistently. You know, I was happy at a men's retreat I went on not too long ago that we actually got into a discussion on the different theological worldviews within Christianity regarding the relationship between God's kingdom and the kingdoms of this world. And so we talked about the dichotomy between the two kingdoms approach and the more neo-Calvinist comprehensive kingdom approach. And of course, if you've listened to the show for a long time, or if you're familiar with my co-patriots over at the Reformed Libertarians podcast, Carrie Baldwin and Greg Baus, 
we have all of us talked about this neo-Calvinist philosophy regarding the kingdoms of man and God and sort of the natural ordering of things. We've talked about the neo-Calvinist idea of sphere sovereignty and how that pertains to evaluating these different spheres of society, including the sphere of civil governance. And so it was really cool to be there at that retreat and to be able to hear my pastors and elders in our church speak to some of these things. And we were able to have really good enriching conversations along these lines, which people who knew me and know my podcast, of course, kind of already knew ahead of time what they were getting into when I would start talking with them. The uh, quote that I love that my associate pastor brought up was a quote by Abraham Kuyper. And I don't have the exact quote on hand, but it's essentially that there isn't a, a corner of God's creation that Christ doesn't look at and declare, you know, loudly. I think it might be yell mine that this is his. And so we need to evaluate all these different things going on in the world and evaluate them with the Christian lens. I don't think that there's an area of human life, of human existence, where we cannot use biblical principles or we cannot use the teachings of Christ or we can't look at those with the considerations of what it means to live as ambassadors for Christ and his kingdom and, and how that then applies to these different areas. And it's not always going to be black and white or transparently clear, although I think the Bible gives us the tools for everything we need in life and gives us the answers for what we absolutely need, which is the answers of eternal life, the answers of ultimate truth of, of reconciliation to God and who Christ was and what his kingdom is about. There are going to be obviously areas of specific particular circumstances, especially like in modern times, that aren't necessarily directly mentioned in uh, the biblical corpus. I mean, there's nothing in the Bible that specifically speaks to how we should view the internet and social media and modern inventions like that. There's obviously principles in the Bible that speak to justice and a desire for justice and for human rights. And that would lead many Christians and Christian abolitionists to advocate for the ending of slavery. But there's not like a direct command in the Bible that says, go for and therefore seek to abolish slavery across the nations. There's biblical exegesis and seeing what the texts say and what they meant in their original language and culture and context, and then applying those principles and trying to universalize them to all areas of life, including civil society. And that's not an exact science. And we try to do this faithfully with guidance of the Holy Spirit, talking to one another as believers and trying to do so in a way that is humble, but that is also uh, seeking to put Christ first and recognizing sometimes that will lead us to, you know, live counterculture. I do believe that that is something we have to do. You know, speaking again to the men's retreat that I was on, the theme was the beginning of Romans 12, that we should seek not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. And we as Christians, I think, do have a choice. We have a choice to either seek to live in a way where we are influencing the world or we will be influenced by the world. And I don't think that there is really a middle ground there. We, we can't really, I mean, unless we try to retreat into our own little bubbles, but that's not what scripture speaks of. Rather, a passage that actually came up at that retreat 
John 17, 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So that the passage goes on to say that Christ is not asking that we would be delivered from the world and you know live in some kind of bubble. We are to be in the world and to be salt and light. I think that's what our call is to be. But that means if we're going to be in the world, we have a choice. We can be conformed to the world or we can seek to ourselves be transformed. And I think that's going to, as a consequence, lead to us having an impact on those around us. And we'll either be recruiting them into God's army, recruiting them into God's kingdom, or there'll be, if people truly reject that, if they are not those who will eventually become part of God's elect, then then there will be some kind of separation. There'll be the rejection of, of Christ. And, you know, we can't be unequally yoked to these people. And so there's a lot that goes into that sort of analysis and what it means to live that out. But we have to choose that. We have to think about that. We have to be actively pursuing the answers to this in the different areas of life that we find ourselves in. And even when it's uncomfortable, because again, we have that choice. And if there's any area we're not seeking, actively seeking to have Christ lead us, to be Lord over our lives in that area, then what are we going to let in? Something else inadvertently is going to become Lord of our life in that area. And that's not, I think, what we're called to do as Christians. And none of us do this perfectly. And I don't speak from a place where I think I have it down perfectly. But it is my prayer that as I continue to grow in Christ, that I, I'm able to identify and have the Spirit reveal more areas of my life that I've yet to fully submit to Christ, to fully submit to Him as, as my Lord and Savior, and to have Him be what impacts my, my decisions, my beliefs, my thoughts, my habits, and all of that to His glory. And so, something that's been going around a lot over the last few weeks as I'm sitting recording this episode. And really, it actually picked up. So I'm recording this on the night of, of the 19th. This will probably get to you guys in, in the next few weeks. But something that got really viral that was being talked about was the letter from Osama bin Laden. And this was like the letter to the American people. And this was essentially kind of like his list of grievances and reasons for going to war. This is actually hard to find now. I will probably put a link in the show notes that you can actually go and find the full text to this, but it's hard to find now. It was easy to find before this recent internet event and news event. Uh, It was easy to find, and now it's kind of been scrubbed by a lot of media outlets, mainstream and even others, because, uh, well, I'll leave speculation to you, but I think that the stated reason is because I think people are like, oh, people are taking out of this context and it's, I don't know, leading people to harmful conclusions. I haven't actually heard people say like a good reason for it being scrubbed. I think it's just, it's controversial and people had it up on their sites and now they're taking it down because of how controversial it was. There was a lot of people who read this and came away with conclusions. And I want to talk about that because I think that, again, this is an area where we as Christians need to see what what happened, what transpired, and try to come away with what the Christian response should be. This letter is rather long, and I I thought about doing this two ways. I thought about reading the entire letter, but it is lengthy, and I'm not sure that that would really be beneficial to the listeners when they can just go read it themselves. 
My fear is if I don't read the whole thing, that some people will find the one part I didn't read and be like, oh, you left this part out intentionally. But, but I'm going to do my best to not gloss over the parts that I'm not reading as if they didn't exist. This letter is, well, let's just say, I mean, interesting's <laughs> too generic. It is an amalgamation of different elements. And it's very confounding to read because you can easily curtail this letter in multiple ways. You can curtail it in a way where you could cherry pick the parts out of it to write a particular narrative. And it is tempting from a person who has libertarian sort of leanings, but I could do that. And there probably are some libertarians who have done that. And I would not agree with that. I think that doesn't do us any good. If we lie, if we even lies by omission, I don't think are going to help us actually make the case we want to make. And I think there is a case to be made here, but then we have to look at it in its entirety, warts and all. Osama bin Laden should go without saying, but apparently not anymore in uh, today's culture. He's not a great man. Far from it. A very, very fallen man. Someone who, who didn't know Christ, who is responsible for the deaths of many people and responsible for leading a lot of people down a path of evil, a path of destruction, a path of violence. And I don't know if that should be the sole focus, but that should be something that that is led with. Because I want to be clear here is that I'm not justifying the life and actions of Osama bin Laden. I'm not justifying the 9-11 terror attacks on the Twin Towers. I would never justify any violence against innocent people. However, I think that there is a difference between seeking to excuse or justify these actions and seeking to understand them and trying to understand them with sufficient nuance and sophisticated understanding that really tries to understand the humanity of what happened. Because although, yes, I'm a Christian and I'm reformed, I I believe in the depravity of mankind and the fallenness and the effect of sin. But I also think that we can look at even the most evil person and often find elements of their life that, okay, well, doesn't mean that what they did was any less evil, but often when we go far back enough, we can find the point in life where they were innocent and then things started happening to them that put them down a particular path that they're still responsible for, but that We can simultaneously hold them accountable and understand that no one's completely responsible for the circumstances they were born into and for, uh, you know, the life events that happened to them. And we can appreciate the tragedy of that. And we can also try to figure out what lessons can be learned there. When we read this letter, I think that we will find that although there's a lot we can pull out and disagree with, and listen, he was a radical jihadist and Muslim who believed that the Quran, believed that his religion called for Sharia law, justified them in the murder of non-Muslims who refused to convert, um, and believed a lot of things about America that, and our way of life. Well, that it's a mixed bag that are both right and wrong, but even the stuff that he's kind of right on, he's right for the wrong reasons. For example, he does talk about in this letter, the parts of our society that are very, in his mind, evil, and that are evidence of our depravity 
and that God has forsaken us and that his actions can be justified as a punishment against the American people. So the idea that we allow homosexuality and sexual promiscuity and things like that, the idea of we permit people to do all sorts of different drugs and intoxicants and we have a culture that glorifies it. You know, it's one thing to say, you know, like a libertarian position is that the government probably, you know, isn't (laughs) going to do any good in trying to uh, ban all drugs and substances. And often this war on drugs has a counterintuitive effect and actually makes the problem worse. But, you know, it's one thing to be like, well, maybe we shouldn't lock people up in cages when they use substances. But it is another thing to say, well, we, and maybe a valid criticism if we just put it in isolation and forget who's saying it, that our society, insofar as it promotes things like promiscuous sex and homosexuality and rampant sort of hedonistic drug use and pleasure seeking, uh, he calls women consumer products. We use them like that and, you know, engage in this very depraved sexualization of everything and treating sex as a commodity, things like that. The AIDS crisis, he points to that at one point. Uh, He points to the fact that we have a lot of rich and wealthy people who are corrupt and act in a way that is very dismissive of of those in like lower classes of, of wealth and life. There's many things in there where we would look at it and go like, okay, you could have a Christian perspective and be like, okay, well, sure, those are things we can criticize about America. Those are things we can say that grieve us, that we should pray for, and that we would want to see change in our culture. They don't bring glory to God. Not a justification for terrorism or for going to war against an entire nation of people for the evil actions of some of them, even if it's a majority of them. Even if the culture is overwhelmingly evil, it doesn't mean that we are justified in random acts of violence against them. So again, I'm painting with some broad strokes here. That is like one category of grievances and things that Bin Laden brings up in this letter. But again, this letter is basically, I mean, it starts out saying that like, he asks two questions, like why are we fighting and opposing you? And what are we calling you to do? And what do we want from you? And then he gives a a list of reasons of why he's attacking the U.S., And that is one set of answers, right? It's that here is how evil your culture and country is. And part of why we are justified, his solution is you need to either convert to Islam or these attacks will continue. That's, I think, obviously wrong. There are other things that are more particular, like just to Islam, like I don't think a Christian would necessarily agree with the idea of allowing usury and giving loans and whatnot and other things that I think are more particular moral taboos in Islam than they are in Christianity. So a little bit of blending over there. And there are then a different category, though, of grievances that I think need to be talked about. Because what we heard from our governing leaders back after 9-11 was not a great explanation of how this happened. It was really just There are Islamic fundamentalists who hate us because we're Christian and they hate us for our freedoms and they have this holy war they want to declare on us in the name of jihad and Islam. I think when you read the other parts of this letter, that narrative begins to fall apart because after bin Laden says, 
we've formed this letter to basically answer two questions. Why are we fighting and opposing you? What are we calling you to do? What do we want from you? He says, as for the first question, why are we fighting and opposing you? The answer is very simple, because you attacked us and continue to attack us. He then lists, you attacked us in Palestine. Palestine, which has sunk under military occupation for more than 80 years. The British handed over Palestine with your help, your support, to the Jews who have occupied it for more than 50 years, 50 years overflowing with oppression, tyranny, crimes, killing, expulsion, destruction, and devastation. And yeah, so he goes on for a long time talking about what's happened in with the history between the Palestinians and Israel. And as you know, I've been doing my best on this show to kind of dive into that history myself. And listen, this is an instance where a very evil man is saying things that line by line, I might be able to nitpick, but the overall narrative of we oppose you because of the role you have played in the displacement and deaths of the Palestinian people and the support of this creation of the nation state of Israel and looking at the history of what you and the British have done since the beginning of the 20th century, he's calling these things out as evil actions of the governments of America and Britain and the United Nations also. And I can't entirely disagree with those assessments because I think that we study the history. Uh, if you listen to what I talked about with Kyle Anzalone and with Scott Horton, we went into detail there. Something I haven't been able to talk about, I don't know if I want to do an episode on it or not, uh, Scott Horton made mention to it, the Modern Made podcast by Daryl Cooper, who does this brilliant, I mean, it is long. It is like a 20-plus hour podcast split up in like six episodes on the history of Zionism and going from pogroms and anti-Semitism in Russia and in Western Europe as well, like things that happened in France and the beginning of Zionism and then ending in World War II with the creation of the state of Israel. It goes through World War I, it goes through the transition period. It's a very complicated, very tragic history and there are so many things you can say about it. You can say that Zionism was this sort of predictable response to the intense anti-Semitism that happened in Europe with Eastern West and the pogroms and the Holocaust obviously only amplified that. And it's understandable that the Jewish people, many of them continually over time just got to a point where they said, we have nowhere to go. And so we're going to go back to our historic homeland and we are going to make a homeland for ourselves to be safe no matter who else is there and what has to be done to make it happen. And I guess you just have to take my word for it if you're not going to do your research. But I, you know, from looking at the history, I think it's absolutely true that there were, although it's understandable what led to Zionism, there were excesses in what the Zionist leaders pushed for and enabled and what their rhetoric was and what they pushed the governments of Britain and then America to do, both pre and post 1948. And so I'll have links for those podcasts again, both the ones I did and for the Modern Made podcast. I can't explain the entire history in a 45-minute podcast episode, but again, and I'll, I'll repeat this now as I've repeated many times, we have to break out of this mentality of good guys versus bad guys. When we're evaluating history and current events, a lot of times it's just, it's just a mess. It's bad guys all around, and there's not always a good guy to root for on either side of the situation. But we can look at 
who's instigating something and who's responding. And it doesn't mean the response is always justified either. You know, like I wouldn't say that the response of what Bin Laden did is justified. However, it is a predictable response. It is an understandable response. And so we can see that with Bin Laden, and I think we can see that with the Zionists. I think we can see that with the Arabs who are responding to the Zionists and to what the governments of Britain and, and Europe and America did in the 1900s through the 1920s and 1940s. And so I definitely advise people look more into that history if you have a desire to do so. It is illuminating. But the Palestinian conflict with Israel is not the only grievance here. That's like the first one, and it goes on for a while, and he kind of covered some of the history there, and that's important. But then he goes on to other grievances that are based on the actions of the American government. You attacked us in Somalia. You supported the Russian atrocities against us in Chechnya, the Indian oppression against us in Kashmir, and the Jewish aggression against us in Lebanon. Under your supervision, consent, and orders, the governments of our countries, which act as your agents, attack on a daily basis. He's calling attention to the fact, and this is true, that there are many countries in the Middle East where those who are in power are basically puppets of the United States are puppets of, you know, Western imperialism, and that they were put there for different reasons that are all about the incentives of the American empire. And those people were often, you know, they serve an interest for us, but they're not like great Western-minded leaders who are ushering in democracy to the area. They are often still brutal dictators who are ruling their people with an iron fist. And so he's calling attention to that. He does say that we're preventing them from establishing Islamic Sharia and using violence and lies to do so. I'm not a fan of Islamic Sharia, but I don't think that the solution to, we don't like that countries in the Middle East want to practice Sharia law. Is it, you know, politically expedient or justified for America to be the police force that goes around and stops them? Is it a Christian response that we should use power of the civil magistrate and militaries and bombs to stop people from doing that doesn't seem to line up for me. Say these governments give us a taste in humiliation and places us in a large prison of fear and subdual. They steal our wealth and sell them to you at a paltry price. It goes on. There's a lot here I could read. I want to skip forward ahead. He talks about occupation and things like that. He talks about something that I've talked about on this show before, Remember I mentioned to look up Madeleine Albright and the 500,000 Iraqi children. Now he uses a different number here, which I don't know if it's true. Again, we don't have an exact count. I've seen it as low as a couple hundred thousand. Bin Laden here says it's 1.5 million. The point is hundreds of thousands or millions of Iraqi children died because of what the Bill Clinton administration did in the 90s where they sanctioned bombings and uh, sanctions (laughs) embargoes on the country of Iraq. And this led to either the direct deaths of these children or they starved to death. Think about that. And he then says, yet when 3,000 of your people died, the entire world rises and has not yet sat down. And you know what? Like, again, this is kind of like the response is like when the worst person you know makes a good point. Yeah, I mean, if a a million Iraqi children die or 500,000 Iraqi children die, no one in America knows about it. If they do, they don't care. Or if it's our leaders, like Madeleine Albright asks, like, well, you know, was that worth it? And she says, yes, it was. 
where is our outrage as Christians to this? Right? Like, forget who's saying it. Like, I've said it. Like, so if you don't like that Bin Laden saying it, I've said it on my show multiple times. Libertarians have been saying this for a while. Ron Paul said this, a Christian and a libertarian said, talked about this on the Congress floor, on the House floor. So it's not some kind of propaganda point. It's something that, like, we should just independently, when we're presented with that fact as Christians, we should be outraged. We should be grieved. And we should be looking at our government officials and going, like, it's hard to think of what we would say. We should be rebuking them in the name of Christ. We should be, as a church, condemning their actions and saying that, like, hey, uh, <laughs> these leaders are not acting in a godly Christian fashion and that we need ones who are going to pursue peace and not murder campaigns. But when 3,000 of our people die in a terrorist attack, it's the end of the world and we need to do whatever it takes to get revenge and stop them. I mean, listen, a terrorist attack is bad. 3,000 of, of American people dying, yes, that's bad. That's a tragedy. But again, as a Christian, should we only care about it when American lives die or should we care anytime an innocent life is lost? So he lists a lot of examples and then he even says at one point that these tragedies and calamities are only a few examples of your oppression and aggression against us. It is commanded by our religion and intellect that the oppressed have a right to return the aggression. Do not await anything from us but jihad, resistance, and revenge. Is it in any way rational to expect that after America has attacked us for more than half a century, that we will leave her to live in security and peace? You may dispute, then, that all the above does not justify aggression against citizens for crimes they did not commit and offenses in which they did not partake. But this argument contradicts your continuous repetition that America is a land of freedom and its leaders in this world. Therefore, the American people are the ones who choose their government by the way of their own free will, a choice which stems from their agreement to its policies. The American people have chosen, consented to, and affirmed their support of the Israeli oppression of the Palestinians, the occupation and usurpation of their land, and its continuing killing, torture, punishment, and expulsion of Palestinians. The American people have the ability and choice to refuse these policies of their government and even to change it if they want. The American people are the ones who pay the taxes which fund the planes that bomb us in Afghanistan, and the tanks that strike and destroy our homes in Palestine, and the armies which occupy our lands in the Arabian Gulf, talking about Saudi Arabia, and the fleets which ensure the blockade of Iraq. These tax dollars are given to Israel for it to continue to attack us and penetrate our lands. He goes on and talks about this, and this idea is just like, like you know, we as America are complicit in what our government does. Now, I don't agree with that. I don't want to make that clear. However, I do think it's interesting that we often use this argument the other way. Something I've heard repeated very often is that the Palestinians, the fact that there's innocent Palestinians dying in the Israeli response, even the best argument, like I'll, I'll steel man it, right? Even the ones that try to say, well, it's tragic and we don't want the innocent people to die. But, you know, we say at the same time, though, like this is the leadership they've chosen. And so this is the natural result of that is that they're complicit. I was like, okay, well, if you're going to make that argument, then you're making Bin Laden's point for him. I don't think that's a coherent argument at all. I don't think that democracy is a 100% substitute for the consent of every man, woman, adult, let alone children. I mean, it's one thing to claim the adults consented to this. It's another thing to claim the children did, right? They clearly couldn't have. This is just not a model of justice that I think a Christian can support. And so I think bin Laden is wrong here, but 
he's sort of responding in light of what the American foreign policy is. It's not like the American foreign policy or the Israeli policy with the Palestinians is to discriminate against those who have committed aggression and innocent civilians and to go you know, above and beyond the call of duty to prevent the deaths of innocent civilians. I mean, far from it. The American foreign policy has done more to kill innocent people in the Middle East than it's done to kill terrorists. And so does that mean I support bin Laden or I justifying Islamic terrorism? No, but I think when you read this, you kind of understand, you know what, this isn't really what we were sold, right? This isn't what we were sold as the American public after 9-11. This wasn't a random attack by people who were just motivated by their hatred of America because we're Christian and we're free. Most of this letter talks about the ways in which we, even if you were going to dispute some of his claims, right? That still breaks the narrative that he just attacked us because we're free. No, he's attacking us and he's recruiting people to attack us. He's dead now, but you know what I mean? In this letter, he's describing how he's doing this and he's able to recruit people because he's coming over here to fight us because we're over there fighting them. And he's okay with killing our children because we're over there killing their children. It's not good, but man, is that so understandable? That's human. That's the desire for revenge. That's like how you, it's eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You punched us, we punch you back. And so what should the Christian response be to this? What should the Christian heart and prayer be when we learn about these things? I think one, we should obviously, again, not justify the terrorist attacks. We also then, if we're going to condemn the killing of innocent life by terrorists, we have to condemn the innocent killing of life by those who are in authority, by those who are in positions of authority in the state of America, the state of Israel, or anywhere else. Murder doesn't become justified because the person doing it is wearing a U.S. military uniform. Murder doesn't become justified because it happened somewhere else in the world. It doesn't become justified because it was done in the name of the interests of the American security state. Murder is murder. If someone has not aggressing against you, especially children. And our military has, and our government has contributed to the deaths of them. Well, we have to call that out just as much as we would call out terrorism and condemn those things. And then we have to speak past. We have to cut through the easy getting caught up in the reactionary mindsets of people on either side. We have to get past that call for an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You know, I, started out this podcast with the beginning of Romans 12, and I will once again echo the ending of Romans 12 for the, you know, probably millionth time on this podcast because it's important, because it's true, because it's what we as Christians are held to. It's the standard we're held to, and it's standard because it's true, and I think it applies to what we need to be preaching to the world. So yeah, let love be genuine, starting in verse 9. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. 
Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let me just make a bold proclamation here. What Jesus has in mind, what the inspiration of the Holy Spirit has in mind here is that we probably don't overcome evil by dropping bombs on them. So <laughs> listen, there's something evil, there's something sinful, there's something, it's wrong. It's a false religion, the false gospel, so to speak. There's something wrong and that we should object to as Christians to Islam and especially to radical Islam, to violent jihadist Islam. But our response shouldn't be to bomb them, right? And if anything, our response should be like, you know what? Maybe we are not as Christians doing a good job at representing Christ, at representing the kingdom of God. If we are not only failing to call out our governments here in the West for what they're doing, but oftentimes, if we're not ignorant to what they're doing, we're sharing it all in. That is so much of what I've witnessed in the evangelical world. I know there are many evangelicals that aren't cheering it on that do have their concerns. And I don't mean to, to overgeneralize here, but man, I mean, if you were in the Middle East and your perception of the American evangelical Christian movement in America is that they're licking their lips and foaming at the mouth, cheering on the bombing of the Middle East and calling for, you know, just leveling Gaza or leveling Afghanistan or just blow them back to the stone age. I mean, you can't tell me you've never heard people say that people who claim to be Christians. I mean, maybe they are, but they need to repent. You couldn't blame a Muslim living in the Middle East for having that perception because there's plenty that's fueled that perception. And we do great harm to the gospel when we allow that to go unabated. And so we have to condemn violence and terrorism, whether it's being done by radical Islamists or by the American empire. It's all wrong. And it perpetuates this cycle of violence Rather, we need to be cutting through that cycle of violence, like at the end of Romans 12, and we need to be saying, you know what? We will never overcome evil with evil. That just perpetuates this cycle. Rather, it's going to take forgiveness. It's going to take someone to, or a group of people, generational change, cultural change, leadership change. People are going to have to, at some point, say, you know what? Mistakes have been made. And you know, America, I hold to a kind of a slightly higher standard, right? I'm not condoning radical Islamists, but they do live in a rather troubled place of the world. America is supposed to be this supposed beacon of freedom and city on the hill. That's what bin Laden said, right? Like, this is what you guys are supposed to be. I can't disagree with him when he points out that we're really not doing that. So his response is wrong. But a lot of what he points out is wrong with our governments and our culture is at least based in some measure of truth that I think we as Christians really need to listen to and grasp and come to some sort of, well, what's the right response? Well, the right response is we need to be praying for our leaders to change course. We need to be calling for our nation and its leaders to repent. Repent from how they have brought this culture down into hedonism, into sexual promiscuity, into mocking in the face of all that is good and all that God has called evil to, for our culture to call good. Yes, we should be calling for repentance there. We should also be calling for repentance of our nation 
to the degree to which our leaders and those who are you know voting for these leaders have participated in callousness towards the lives of those living in the Middle East and around the world. I mean, this isn't just a Middle Eastern problem. The American empire has its fingers and has violent and uh, tyrannical and empirical pressure and presence in pretty much all corners of the earth. And I hope to talk more about that. There's things happening in South America and things happening in Eastern Europe that we eventually need to go back and talk more about what's happened in Ukraine and Russia and the surrounding areas and and NATO, and there's so much, it's almost too much to talk about. And I, I was almost, I almost need to do a daily podcast to try to get to all, but doing my best with this weekly one. And this week, my message is this. It's that we need to understand that Ron Paul, when he talked about blowback, when he said, and this is like the Giuliani movement, you can, you can look it up, Ron Paul and Rudy Giuliani, Ron Paul said, they don't hate us for our freedom. They hate it because we've been doing regime change over there for decades and bombing them and blowing them up. And this is what bin Laden said. And 9-11 was blowback for that. doesn't mean that it was right, but it means it was predictable. And that, you know what, if you go around and act as this tyrannical empire in this area, you're going to sow seeds of hatred and resentment and people are going to retaliate. People are going to be more drawn to these violent, radical versions of Islam, the more we participate in making their lives miserable and contribute to blowing up their brothers and sisters and cousins and parents and nieces and nephews and houses and buildings and mosques and churches and starving them to death with our blockades. When our government contributes to that, we are sowing the seeds of of these violent extremists. I mean, Paul Buchanan also called this out almost prophetically, like he said back in 2005, 2006, I forget the exact time, but basically said when there was bombings going on then, he was like, what do you think is going to happen in 15 years? He's like, the little kid who just saw his parents get blown up or saw his his siblings get blown up, like he's going to grow up to be the next Al-Qaeda, the next Hamas, the next, you know, group of terrorists who are going around waging jihad. And he's right. So we need to recognize that. Another good article to read is When Will We Learn by Harry Brown. He wrote this the day after 9-11, which I think just took guts. And he said the same thing. Like, 9-11 didn't just happen in a vacuum. History didn't begin 9-11-2001. All of the things that Bin Laden pointed out are true in terms of the ways in which the American government has led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people over in the Middle East. And there's so much he didn't even bring up that we could go back and talk about, both in Iran and Afghanistan and Syria and Arabia. I mean, there's so much. And I don't expect everyone here to become an expert in the history and foreign policy, but just I think what's been provided here in my podcast and the snippets I give you should be enough to realize that, you know, again, I've said this past several episodes, going back the last couple of months, these leaders are not doing everything it takes to pursue peace. They're not acting in a way that any Christian should be able to get behind and endorse. And so I'm not saying we should violently overthrow our government, but we should be proclaiming the truth. We should be holding them to a higher standard. And we should be doing everything we can to make sure that the, the reputation that Christians have, because we're representatives of the gospel and of God's key kingdom, that the way in which we hold our leaders accountable and the things that we advocate for should not be confused with advocating for war and death and destruction and the killing of innocent people. So 
I would encourage you to go read the Bin Laden letter and read it with those considerations I have in mind and to pray, meditate on that and to come away with that understanding. And again, think about the ways in which, what should the Christian response be to this? What should the Christian response be to these historic injustices? And what should the Christian response be to American imperialism? Thank you guys for listening. As always, if you enjoy this show, if this content is something that you find is valuable to you, if you find that you, you learn something from it, you gain something from it, it helps you to think about things in the world in a Christian perspective, or you learn more about libertarian ideas and things like that. If you want more content like this, as always, LCI is a nonprofit and we operate off of your donations. So whether you can make just a one-time donation or if you're able to make a monthly donation of $10 or more a month, you can become an LCI insider. You get free books, both physical copies and eBooks, discounts on merchandise. You get to attend donor calls, talk with people like me and Doug and other other staff at LCI, uh, interact with us and so many other perks. So please go check out biblicalanarchypodcast.com or libertarianchristians.com and find out more. And that's all I have for you guys. Talk to you again next week. The Biblical Anarchy Podcast is a part of the Christians for Liberty Network, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you love this podcast, it helps us reach more with a message of freedom when you rate and review us on your favorite podcast apps and share with others. If you want to support the production of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, please consider donating to the Libertarian Christian Institute at biblicalanarchypodcast.com, where you can also sign up to receive special announcements and resources related to biblical anarchy. Thanks for tuning in.